On my way over uh, here this morning, I was, as you tend to do if you're a preacher and you're going to preach, I'm thinking through my message. And, uh, and I looked in my mirror and a car had pulled up right on my tail and he had two options on his car I didn't have on mine. He had uh, lights and he had a siren. <clears throat> and he turned on one of them. He turned on the lights and I pulled over and he walked up to the door and said, sir, may I ask where it is that you're in such a hurry to get to? I said, well, I'm going to go preach and tell people they need to obey the Word of God. <laughs> and he kind of smiled. He said, okay, you got your license? And yeah, okay. He said, I'll be right back. And uh, so as he's, I'm meditating on God's Word while he's back there. <laughs> he came back and he said, Steve Farrar, Steve, he said, I think you've been at my church. I said, really? He said, do you know Dr. Tony Evans? I said, yeah. He said, you've been down there to speak for him, haven't you? I said, I have, often. I said, is that where we met? He said, no, actually, uh, I pulled you over on your way <laughs> to speak at... I said, you know, I remember that now. <laughs> I'd like you to stand and turn with me to 1 Chronicles 12, because I don't know about you, but I need to read the Word of God, and I obviously need to apply it. I, we're going to be back in 1 Kings 17. That's where we were last week. Um, it's worth going back to. There's, there's more there for us. But I want us to go to 1 Chronicles 12.32 because in what's, what's going on in 1 Chronicles 12 is that if you look at verse 1, David uh, is on the run. Saul's trying to kill him. Uh, and all these men come from all over Israel to support David. And men from different tribes, and they're all listed according to their, uh, their military abilities. It talks about the sons of Benjamin who were gifted with the bow and the sling, and they were good with the right hand or the left. These guys were something else. And it's listing all these men and their, uh, their prowess. But you get to 1232, and it says, and the sons of Issachar were men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do doesn't talk about their ability with bow and arrow or warfare. It, it talks about their, um, it talks about two things. Their discernment. They understood the times. We're living in troubled times. And we need to understand the times. But you only understand the times, not through CNN or Fox News or talk radio. You only understand the times through looking through God's Word. That's where we get discernment. That's what calms us down. That's what steadies us. So the men of Issachar were men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. Because when you're in God's Word, He'll give you direction. 
It's not an idle word for you. Deuteronomy 32, it is your life. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. You'll know what you should do, Psalm 32. The men of Issachar were men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. We want to be men of Issachar this morning. If you flip over to Lamentations 3, if you go to Matthew, you've gone too far. If you're in Psalms, keep going right. You'll see if you can find Jeremiah, just go to your right and tucked in right behind Jeremiah, you're going to find Lamentations. Lamentations um, perhaps was Jeremiah or someone else. They're not, they don't identify themselves. But this is a sad book because they were a witness to the death of their nation, Judah. They saw it happen, and it didn't have to happen. Uh, there are five laments, and uh, I read this often right now because I'm grieving for where we are as a country. I think you are too. But right smack in the middle, Lamentations 3, and this guy is struggling, this guy is grieving. He says, there's no pain like my pain. Um, he says in 317, my soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness. And he knows the Lord. Uh, 18, I, so I say my strength has perished and so is my hope from the Lord. This guy's just emoting. He's just being honest. You know, you can be honest with the Lord. If you're grieving, you're grieving. If you're hurting, you're hurting. Nothing wrong with that. If you've got a broken heart, you've got a broken heart. He's near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. And you don't learn those verses when everything's going well. You learn those verses when your life is falling apart. His life has fallen apart. The worst has happened. But you keep reading in three, and it's like he pulls himself together. Watch this. He says in verse 21, he, he kind of gets, gets kind of, gets himself like this and kind of slaps himself in the face and said, listen, listen, this I recall to mind. Therefore, I have hope. You got to think as a Christian. You got to think, think biblically. This I recall to mind. Therefore, I have hope. Watch this, that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord. Within 15 minutes of getting up in the morning, I quote that verse, those verses to myself. Sometimes within three minutes, sometimes within five. I quote this every day of my life, right now. Let's pray. So, Father... We put our hope in things that are not worth putting our hope in. We put our hopes in being popular. We put our hopes in having more money or a bigger house or a nicer car or this or that. And we don't mean for this to happen, but those things can become idols, and they take first place in our hearts instead of you. Um, We are, as the old hymn said, we are prone to wander. We are prone to leave the God we love. But in your mercy, you always call us back to yourself. 
And we have people in here, everyone looks fine, everyone looks together. We have people here who are grieving with broken hearts over personal situations that have just devastated them in recent days. We have others who are doing well, and we're grateful for your goodness in these times. I think we're all concerned if we're paying attention to what's happening in our nation, what's going on in the world. We thank you that you own the world. You're sovereign. You have a plan. You're in charge. You're control, because it sure looks like it's out of control. If we get away from your word, we get depressed. But this I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. Help us to think this morning biblically, carefully. Help us to be men of Issachar. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My son John's a firefighter. He's uh, 35, married, little boy, another little boy in the oven. He'll be out in October. Uh, we're all excited. John's doing well. <clears throat> I have his permission to tell this story. Um, his junior year of high school, he wasn't doing real well into his senior year. Now, this happens. It's just part of life being a teenager. You're, if you're a boy, you're trying to become a man, and you're trying to make your own way and be independent, and it's a season of life. It's part of life. And it's hard to navigate that, as it is any transition, no matter where you are in life. They're all hard to navigate. <clears throat> We've, we, we had a principle as we were raising our kids that we tried to follow, and that basic principle was that the more responsible you were, the more privileges you would get. And on the other hand, if you were irresponsible, then you'd lose some privileges. John had always been pretty easy. He'd, he'd been... He really had been. But about his junior year, he was feeling his oats. And uh, he began to push limits and boundaries. And so we'd have a talk, and uh, he'd say, okay, Dad, and then he wouldn't do it. And uh, so I'd have to pull a privilege and, you know, try to get his attention, and then something else would occur. <clears throat> and it got increasingly uh, difficult. And each time we'd have a talk, and he'd say, I'll do it, and he didn't, and he was resistant, I'd pull another privilege. And then I put, and this went on for about a year, and senior year is about to start. And he came home one day, and we, we, we lived out in the country, and it's quite a ways to school, so I, I got an old Jeep, and he would drive it and his brother to school. And he came in, and he said, he looked around, and he goes, hey, Dad, where's my Jeep? Uh, and I said, I gave it away. <clears throat> He was rarely at a loss for words, but at that moment he was. <laughs> you gave it away. I said, I gave it away. By the way, that wasn't your Jeep. That was my Jeep. I was letting you use it. Is, Dad, is this this privilege responsibility thing? I said, oh, you're very astute. He goes, Dad, I can't believe, I can't believe you did that. I said, you know, John, I can't believe you pushed me to this point. That's what I can't believe. You know what's really sad about this, John? This never needed to happen. Didn't have to happen at all. Because if you recall, let's go back a little ways. 
Let's do a little history here. Because we were here, and I had to pull a privilege, and you said you'd respond, and you didn't. And then I had to pull this, and we've been doing this now for a year. He goes, but Dad, he goes, Dad, he goes, Dad, how am I going to get to school? I said, well, there's a bus stop right down there. He goes, Dad, I'm a senior. I said, ah, you'll be the biggest guy in the bus. <laughs> now, that's funny now. It wasn't funny then. But you, you see, Proverbs 19:18 says, discipline your son while there is hope. And I was running out of time because he was a senior, and I had to get his attention. And you see, it's my job from Scripture to turn my boys into men. And to be a man means you're responsible. To be a man means you get yourself up out of bed. It means you get to work on time. It means you give a full day's work for a full day's pay. It means you're faithful. It mean, there are certain traits. You're responsible. You take initiative. Teenage boys don't want to do that, so they've got to be trained. They've got to be disciplined. Teenage boys, the thing about them, they never want to go to bed. When they get in bed, they never want to get out of bed. So you've got to turn them into men. And I wasn't, I, I had to get his attention. He couldn't believe I took away the Jeep. But I did it because I loved him. And it wasn't an immediate transformation, but things began slowly, gradually, and the Lord was at work. But he needed a firm hand. He needed a hand of discipline. We need firm hands. Hebrews 12 says, if you've never been disciplined by the Lord, you're probably not one of his sons or daughters. Because every son that he receives, he disciplines. Everyone. Why? Because he loves us. And it goes on and says, and to those who have been trained by it, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Um, I didn't want to take away the Jeep, but I had to. We're in 1 Kings 17. You say, what does that have to do with Jeeps? I'm not quite sure, but I'm going to uh, hopefully come up with something. Actually, I think it has a lot to do with Jeeps because in 1 Kings 17, what's happening is that the nation of Israel is in a downward spiral. They are in trouble. The book is interesting. The book is 1 Kings. It's where we learn about Elijah. And we saw last week that Elijah confronted a um, a man who knew better, Ahab, who was raised to know the Lord, he married a reprobate woman named Jezebel. They thought the country belonged to them. And what they were doing was by their lifestyle and by what they were teaching and by the religion that they were forcing on the people, they were turning people away from, from the one true God. They were getting the people into idolatry and all kinds of sewage that was unpleasing to the Lord. And they just kept at it, they kept at it, and they kept at it, and they kept at it. Now, Ahab was not the first king in First Kings to do this. There are previous kings. In fact, in kings, you've got a history. If you look at First Kings, uh, 
the first 11 chapters, we find Solomon. Now, you know the first three kings of Israel were Saul, and then David, and then Solomon. Uh, and then when Solomon died, he had a son named Rehoboam. Perhaps you're pregnant, you're looking for a unique name. <laughs> Don't do Rehoboam. Solomon was wise. Rehoboam was a fool. Rehoboam, if you read the Scripture in 1 uh, <clears throat> Kings 12, Rehoboam basically split the nation that his father and his grandfather had held together. Uh, he basically split it in about 72 hours, and they divided into two nations. Ten tribes were the northern tribe. That's Israel. That's where Ahab was. That's where Elijah was. The southern tribe were, was Judah and actually the little nation of Benjamin, and they were in the south. So the northern kingdom, kingdom Israel, southern kingdom of um, Judah. What's the story of first kings? Well, then you have all these kings. Once the nation divided, you had kings in the north and you had kings in the south. And it gives us accounts of these different kings. Fascinating stuff. All the kings of the north were wicked. It started with Jeroboam, who was an idolatrous. He was afraid of losing his power. He didn't want the people going down to Jerusalem to worship. So he set up his own gods. He set up his own places of worship. He constructed his own counterfeit religion. And then every king after him followed in his suit. Uh, Charles Dyer, in his comments on First Kings, he calls First Kings the slippery slope to national ruin. The slippery slope to national ruin. Uh, these kings in the north, they knew what God said, but they thought they knew best. And God would speak to them through the Word. He would speak to them through the prophets, and they would not listen, and they would not pay attention. They had been given incredible privileges. When they went into the Promised Land, remember your, your Sunday school Bible history, they, they'd been in Egypt as slaves for over 400 years. They come out, God does some remarkable things. The ten plagues on the nation, He opens up the Red Sea. He's going to give them the promised land. The promised land is inhabited by all the ites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, uh, Amorites, all these ites. They're powerful people. They're technologically advanced. They have iron chariots, and they're godless, and they have false gods like Baal. Um, and God said to Joshua, you follow me, and you be strong and courageous, and you don't depart from my word, and I'm going to give you that land. Uh, what was tragic was that as you follow on, as, as you read the history, and finally when they got their kings, um, the great privileges that they had been given, they squandered. Um, in Deuteronomy 6, God said to them, I'm going to give you, when they were going to the promised land, he said, I'm going to give you houses you didn't build. He didn't say, I'm going to give you a mortgage on a house you didn't build. He said, I'm going to give you the house. I'm going to give you houses you didn't build. I'm going to give you vineyards you didn't plant. I'm going to give you cisterns you didn't hewn. That's where they would reserve the water. There, there's a, huge, uh, a, a cistern at uh, Armageddon, Armageddon, where the battle will take place. And you can walk down these several hundred steps, as I recall, that have been chiseled out of granite, and they capture the rainfall down deep, hundreds of feet down, uh, 
hundreds and thousands of gallons of water captured because there's not a lot of rainfall up there. I'm going to give you a cistern. But see, that cistern, when you walk down the first step of that cistern, you see chisel marks. Some guy looked at that granite a long time ago and got out his chisel and got out his hammer, and he says, I think I will hewn a cistern. And he worked on it, and his son worked on it, and then his son, and then his son, and his son, because it takes a long time to hewn a cistern. God said, I'm going to give you cisterns you didn't hewn. In other words, you get in the promised land, I'm going to take a dump truck of my blessing and prosperity, and I'm just going to dump it on you. But be careful. This is Deuteronomy 6. That these good things from my hand don't turn your heart to other gods. And that is precisely what happened. So you get to 1 Kings, you get to 1 Kings, and you've got the slippery slope to national ruin. Mark Deaver, uh, pastor in Washington, D.C., Deaver gives one-word summaries of books of the Bible. He's brilliant on this. For 1 Kings, his word is decline. And then for 2 Kings, and really 1 and 2 Kings are the same book, we just have divided it. His word for Second Kings is fall. So First Kings is decline. That goes along with Charlie Dyer, the slippery slope to national ruin. They just kept declining. They just kept declining. And then in Second Kings, they fall. And the nation of Israel ultimately goes into captivity under the Assyrians in 722 B.C. God warned them. He warned them. He warned them. You say they were taken in captivity. They were. Can I put it another way? God took away their Jeep. He didn't want to do it. It didn't have to happen. But they would not listen. They just wouldn't listen. So sadly, the northern kingdom with the ten tribes, they go into captivity. Oftentimes, younger brothers will learn from their bigger brothers. They'll see the mistakes bigger brothers make and the discipline that comes on bigger brothers, and a lot of times they'll learn from it, and they'll get a little more savvy and maybe still rebel, but a little more under the radar. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, That's not what happened with Judah. They saw their bigger brother. They were the same age because they split at the same time. But they saw their bigger brother rebel, and they saw their bigger brother go into captivity. Did they learn? Uh Uh-uh. No. Because in 586 B.C., they go into captivity under the Babylonians, and they're going to be in there for 70 years. Ronald Toynbee talks about great civilizations. He would call it the rise and fall of great nations. That's what you have in um, Kings. I quoted this book last year. Ray Steadman is my pastor in California when I was in college. And um, last year, I was, we were moving, I was putting books away, and I saw his book, Death of a Nation, which is on Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet who spoke to the southern kingdom years later, and um, If it was Jeremiah in Lamentations, he was lamenting and grieving because his nation died and it didn't need to happen. Some of us are concerned this might happen to our nation. 
we see symptoms. On the back of Ray's book on Jeremiah, he says this, and this book was written in 1975. He says, in many ways, Ray Stedman says, we are facing the parallel of Judah's experience in our own day. Many feel that as we celebrate our bicentennial, you remember that? Many, many feel that as we celebrate our bicentennial, we also may witness the beginning of the end of the United States of America. We can learn a great deal about what is going on in our nation by studying this great prophecy of Jeremiah. Ray goes on and says in, in this book, the, the editors say, in the death of a nation, we follow the tragic 42-year ministry of this great man of God, Jeremiah. Jeremiah had one overriding theme. Judgment ultimately will come to those who reject God, and repentance is the only way out. That's still the message today. Judgment will come. God is a patient God. He is amazingly long-suffering and kind and merciful. Sometimes we see things, and I do anyway, and I, why doesn't God judge us? Why do these people keep getting away with this stuff? This is unbelievable. It's like they're Teflon. Why doesn't God just judge them? Why doesn't he just take them out? And then I think about me. Why doesn't he just take me out? My rebellion, my obstinance, my plans over his plans. I thank him for his grace. I thank him for his mercy. I, I think when you look in the Old Testament, you see a death of a nation <clears throat> And this is why we're talking, <clears throat> excuse me, and we started last week, really with the title, When Life is Hanging by a Thread. Sometimes life is hanging by a thread because of a physical disease, because of something you're fighting, or your life is hanging by a thread because of a, uh, you, you've lost employment and you're in between, and different reasons. We're, we're at a place in this country where, if we're honest, uh, we know we're kind of hanging by a thread. And we're all watching November because in November, it's going to be really interesting. Uh, it's already interesting. Uh, I'm going to vote, but I'm glad God's already got it determined. It's fixed. It's set because he's got a plan. I mean, he's got a plan. So I'm going to go vote, and then I'm going to be really interested to see what he's going to do. But I don't think he wants us depressed, and I don't want he thinks us fearful, and I don't think he wants us just panicked, and I don't think, I just think he wants us to trust in him. You see? Uh, Judah, when they went into captivity, they lost their freedom. They lost their rights. Uh, life as they knew it was taken away. Uh, God took away their Jeep. It didn't have to happen. Um, what's going to happen with us? You know as well as I do that democracy, from our standpoint, is potentially hanging by a thread because the Supreme Court is hanging by a thread. And it looks like the Supreme Court, if it goes a certain way, it's very possible that freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom could at some point, I'll go away. Don't know when, don't know the timing, don't know anything. But it's possible. Let me say a word about the Supreme Court. They're not. 
<clears throat> I believe they're called the Supreme Court of the United States. Now, we're under their authority, Romans 13. We are to obey the laws of the land. We obey the laws of the land until the powers that be tell us to disobey the God of the Bible. And when the powers that be tell us to disobey the God of the Bible, we say, O oh, king, we don't need to give you an answer on this. Our God is able to deliver us from that fire. But even if he does not, we will not bow. We'll take the consequences, but we are not obeying the God who is above you. The reason the Supreme Court is not the Supreme Court is that one day every one of those justices will make an appearance at the Supreme Court. And they will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. All judgment has been given unto the Son. Don't mistake. God instituted government. God's not against government. We shouldn't be against government. We're against ungodly government. And we obey as best we can, as Daniel did. We ask him to navigate us. But these are the days in which we're living. Uh, we're going to get to 1 Kings 17. But on your way, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I love 2 Corinthians because Paul is so honest about what he's dealing with. Some preacher wrote a book called Your Best Life Now. Um, well, let me tell you right now, your best life is not now. Your best life is coming. There's a place called heaven. This isn't it. In the world, you'll have tribulation, Jesus said. Through many Tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Acts 14, 28. Philippians 1, 29. It has been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for his sake. Paul is suffering in 2 Corinthians. He says in, I, I said go to 4, but if you stop off at 1, he says in verse 8, we don't want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia. Not our prosperity, our affliction. And, and we were burdened excessively, beyond our strength, beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life itself. I remember the day in my early 30s, I was going through that depression, and I really thought it would be a comfort if I could just die. I wasn't going to do anything. I had a wife and kids, but I, for the first time, I could understand why someone would take their life, because the depression was so deep, verging on despair, you see no way out. And it encouraged me when I read those verses that Paul felt that way. He was excessively burdened beyond his strength. If you're beyond your strength, God will give you new strength. But you're out of gas, you're out of strength. Just where it is. His power is perfected in weakness. So he's struggling. If you go to uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 4, he says in verse 8, he says, we are afflicted in every way. Now, we can just run right by this and miss it. We are afflicted. He didn't say we are afflicted in a lot of ways. He said, I'm afflicted in every way. I look at every area of my life, and I'm suffering. And he's not exaggerating. We are afflicted in every way. Watch this. Oh, but not crushed. Well, man, that's crushing. Yeah, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed. Are you perplexed about what's going on? You're perplexed about this or this or this? A lot of times we're perplexed in the Christian life. Because God hasn't made the path clear. 
what's coming. As thy days, so shall thy strength be. He'll get you through the next 12 hours, but long term, you can't see. You're perplexed. You're not sure. That's okay. That's all right. God knows. Psalm 142.3, when my spirit was overwhelmed, you knew my path. I don't have to know my path. He knows it. I'm good. He's got me. He's got me behind. He's got me before. And he's got me on both flanks. He's got me. He's got you. We're perplexed. Ah, but not despairing. You perplexed? It's all right to be per- You don't need to despair. Persecuted. Oh, my gosh. What if I were to be persecuted? Well, he was persecuted. A lot of Christians are persecuted in the world. We're getting a little of it. Not much. We might get some more. I mean, who knows? Well, I don't think I could handle that. Oh, you could handle it. If you know Christ. If you don't know Christ, you're getting out anyway. Because they went out from us because they were not of us. There are false believers in churches. And if it's not down deep in your gut, you better get all in with Christ. Run to him. Run to, this is no time to be playing games. He's persecuted. Oh, but I'm not forsaken. Wow. No, he's not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. I could read, let me go to 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. See, we read that, and as we read it, man, if that's what's coming here, we start to lose heart. Wait a minute. He's in it, and he says, therefore, we do not lose heart. Why not? Well, he gives reasons, but I'd also give you Lamentations 3. You don't have to lose heart because the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. You had a supply yesterday, you got a new supply, and in the morning you're going to get a FedEx letter with another supply. That's the Word of God. It's either true or it isn't. Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Now watch this, 17 and 18. For momentary light affliction. (laughs) All that Paul had gone through, and then later he talks about how many times he'd been shipwrecked, how many times he'd been beaten with rods. He'd been beaten times. He can't even remember how how many times they'd beaten him. The stuff this guy went through, and then he says this. That's later on in the book, but he says this. For momentary light affliction. Really? More than we'll ever go through, momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen. This is why you can't watch Fox News all day. This is why you can't listen to talk radio all day because you're looking... You're looking at the wrong things. What does he say? While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. We live in the middle of a secularist culture. Education, government, everything secular. What does that mean? Secularists believe that this is the only world that there is. Jesus said there's another world. And if you're just looking at this world, you ought to be depressed. 
and you ought to be in despair. But there is a Savior who came from another world and who died. 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered you as a first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose on the third day, that he appeared to Cephas, to Peter, then he appeared to the twelve, then he appeared to five hundred at one time. Lastly, he appeared to me, Paul says. He's the living Christ. And then to his disciples who were troubled in John 14, Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. If I go to prepare a place, I will come and receive you again unto myself. There's another world. You can't ever forget that. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are... Let me back up. Well, we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. The things which are not seen are eternal. See, the men of Issachar understood the times because they were looking through the lens of the Word of God and to what God was doing that most people can't see because 1 Corinthians 2, the natural man does not discern the things of God. They can't see it. Momentary light affliction is producing for us. See, this is how you handle it. So I want to ask you something. What do you do when the worst happens? Um, this is not Norman Vincent Peale this morning. Uh, this is not just the power of positive thinking. There's only power in biblical thinking. You see? I might have said this last Sunday, if, if you weren't depressed when you walked in here, allow me to help you. <laughs> but if we're honest, we're concerned because we're facing some depressive things, and in some ways we're hanging by a thread, but then again we're not because underneath are the everlasting arms. So Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, preached a message in 1969 in Pensacola, Florida on that. It, it was turned into a book along with some other messages. Uh, Hurricane, I believe it was Camille, was on its way. They had to move the service to another place because of the hurricane. And uh, based on 2 Corinthians 4, he says this. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who pastored in London, uh, from the late 1930s into the 1968. He said this, During uh, World War II in my ministry in London, I often used to say that what determines whether or not you and I are Christians is not what we say on vacation or what we say when we are in our studies or reading a book somewhere uh, and reading about theology and reading the Scriptures. Uh, that is not the ultimate test. The acid test of our profession is this. What do you feel like when you are sitting in an air raid shelter and you can hear the bombs dropping round about you? And you know that the next bomb may land on you and may be the end of you. You see, that's the acid test. A lady came up to me between services. I imagine had to be in her 90s. Sweet lady, a little bent over, elderly. She said, your message brought back good memories and bad memories, I heard her say in her English accent. 
She said, I remember the bombings in London. And my father and mother had to send me off for my security. And I left when I was eight. And I returned when I was 16. And I never knew if they were alive. I never knew if they were still alive until I got another letter. You see, that's the acid test. He goes on and says, how do you feel when you were face to face with the ultimate, with the end? Uh, or I might put it in terms of young men engaged in action on the field of battle. What is your response as you are facing life and death and all the great ultimate questions? What's your reaction? Or coming near where we are today, let me put it like this. The ultimate test of our profession of the Christian faith is what we feel, what we say, and what our reaction is when a hurricane comes or a tornado or some calamity produced by nature or some violent epidemic, a disease that brings us face to face with time and eternity, with life or death, or may I insert, or when you possibly could lose your nation and your freedoms. That's the acid test. Do we want that? No. Could it happen? Sure. Will it happen? We don't know. But we sure have symptoms. So where do you go? What's the acid test? It's what we just read, 2 Corinthians 4, 17. See, he's talking about heavy-duty stuff when the bombs are dropping. When you're, when you're facing... When you're facing imminent death because of a disease and there's nothing they can do. What does he say? For momentary light affliction. That's really something that he would say that. Is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Um, you see, here's how you have to think when we think about what if the worst were to occur. And, and by the way, let me ask you something. What if your worst fears did occur, whatever they are, about any subject? I've gotten up in the middle of the night before, and I've written on a legal pad, Psalm 42. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you been cast down within me? Why, why can't I sleep? Why am I so worried? Why am I so anxious? I remember when Mary was pregnant with our youngest, and there were severe complications, and I couldn't sleep all night because I thought she might die and Josh might die. I remember that very well, sweating it out on the couch. You know, I'd been to seminary, and I knew the verses, but man, I was trying. This is the acid test. Do I believe that you're in charge? Do I believe that you're in control? What am I going to do if I lose her? I was already in a depression. I'll never forget that as long as I live. What do you do if the worst happens? I've learned to go to, I take Psalm 42. I just get up. I get a legal pad, Psalm 42. Why are you in despair? Why are you cast down? Why are you in despair on my soul? He's talking to himself. So I'll say, well, here's why I'm in despair, and I write him out. This, 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 because I'm afraid that'll happen, that'll happen, and that'll happen. I get it all down. I read it. I look at the worst, and then I go to the rest of the verse. Why are you in despair on my soul, and why are you cast down within me? Watch this. Hope in God, I shall again praise him for the help of his saving acts. But, but Steve, what if the bomb falls on me? Do you know Christ? He's just saved you. Has he not? Well, I might die. Paul says it's far better to die. Do you believe that? Or do you not believe it? 
Either true or it isn't. Momentary light affliction. He's not saying his affliction was, was um, superficial. His, his affliction was real. But here's how you handle I'm not sure I can handle this. I'm not sure I can handle this. This might go on for more years. It might go on for more time. Well, what you do is you got to compare. You take your affliction and you remember that it's momentary. Yeah, but I've had it for years and it might go for years. It's still momentary because what you got to do is back up and look at the life you have in Christ, which is eternal. You will be alive for billions and billions and trillions and trillions of years and you'll just be getting started. And so you take a scale with two sides and you put your affliction in there and it's heavy and it'll drop. And then you put that on the other side, you put the eternal weight of glory without pain, fear, stress in the presence of Christ forever and it is an eternal weight of glory. It's perspective. If you look at Romans 8.18, it's exactly what it says. Same thing. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, now watch this, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That only comes through Christ. You say, well, I'm not sure I know Christ. Well, then turn to him. Turn to him. Say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. I need you. I believe you're the Savior. I believe you're God. I believe you died for my sin. We've got people here that if you're not sure about this, they'd be happy to talk with you after the service because you can have peace with God. And folks, we need peace with God in these troubling times. Let's go to uh, 1 Kings 17. Took me a while to get there. Uh, We went over this last week, so I'm just going to summarize What happened with Elijah was he stood up to this extremely powerful couple who were killers. And as a result of telling them that it wouldn't rain for three and a half years, just to summarize, they thought Baal controlled the rain. They thought Baal controlled the agricultural cycles, the fact that there was grain, that they had crops, that they could have a harvest. They praised Baal for that. That didn't come from Baal. That came from Yahweh. That came from Almighty God. That came from the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the bread of life. And, they, and, and Ahab knew it came from him. But he went after the Baals. And so Elijah shows up in 1 Kings 71, 71, and he says, Listen, it's not going to rain until Yahweh says it's going to rain. And it didn't rain for three and a half years. And so he was, his, his, his picture was in post offices all over do they still do that? I don't know if they still do that. He was most wanted. And so what God did was God spirited him out of there because these people were killers and they were going to kill him. So what happens, you've got a couple of stories that happens in 1 Kings 17. And the first one is, is that God weaves a web of protection for him. And God immediately says to him, what I want you to do, you've delivered my message. Now I want you to go to the book, the brook at Cherith. And what happened at Cherith? Uh, 
Elijah delivers the message in 17. And then God says in 3, Go away from here, turn eastward, hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. It shall be that you will drink of the brook. That's fascinating that he would drink of this bubbling brook. But there was drought in the land. In fact, there was so much drought, not only was there not rain, if you read carefully 17.1, there was no dew. Not even dew on the grass in the backyard in the morning as you drink your coffee. God just shut it off, but not for Elijah. He had a bubbling brook in the midst of drought. Oh, and then the ravens brought him bread, verse 6. The ravens. I saw a thing this week on National Geographic on ravens. Ravens are kind of... They're kind of the insane birds. I saw this thing with this big osprey in the Grand Canyon. Wayne Spang is six feet. He swoops down, gets his fish out of the Colorado River, comes up, and then here comes this raven, this little raven. And he's driving this osprey, and finally the, ra the osprey just leaves. He, because, you know, you ever met somebody and they kind of got a, a look in their eye like they're not quite right? <laughs> like, they're not, like they're not all there, and you can just kind of tell, you know, I need a buffer here. <laughs> Ravens are kind of the, that kind of bird. All the other birds go, you know, give that guy some space. <laughs> they're insane. They're unpredictable. They're crazy. They're notorious for not feeding their own babies. And who does God use to feed him twice a day on time and sustain him? The least likely candidates. And then the brook dries up. Now he's in trouble. A lot of times we have, uh, God takes care of us. He provides. We've got a stream of income. It's great. We're right where we're supposed to be. And suddenly stuff starts drying up. You go, oh, my gosh. Hey, Lord, this is drying up. What am I going to do? you got anxiety because this has really been nice. I've enjoyed this, but now it's drying up. What do I? Well, you know what? He's got something else for you. Oh, I'm thinking it's going to be that. It may be that, but then again, it may not be that. Because a lot of times we make our plans say, you know, Lord, this would be really, oh, I bet you, wouldn't it be great if the Lord did this? But maybe that's not what the Lord wants to do. So what does the Lord do? You get down to the widow at Zarephath and eight, the word of the Lord, the brook dries up. And the Lord says, arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon. Sidon was the home of Jezebel. It was the capital of Baal worship. He's sending him into the enemy camp. And he's sending him to a widow. And he gets to the widow, and he sees the widow, and she's gathering some wood. And he says uh, in verse 10, uh, he called to her, please get me a water and jar and that I may drink. She was going to get it. He called and said, please get me water in a jar and bring me a piece of bread. She says, well, as the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in a bowl, little oil. I'm gathering a few sticks to prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. Well, that's encouraging. Now watch what he does. He was, he, this, this, this was bold. Elijah said to her, do not fear. She, she was out. She's out of everything. She's out of resources. Where are you today with resources? Maybe you look fine, but maybe you're just about out. You know what God would say to you right out of scripture? Do not fear. I'm the God of Elijah. Do not fear, 
do as you have said. Watch this. But make me a little bread cake from it first. And bring it out to me. And afterwards, you may make one for yourself and for your son. For, thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. And, and then she did according to the word of Elijah. See, she obeyed. Unlike Ahab, she obeyed. And you know what happened? There was going to be drought for three and a half years, and they didn't bring in any trucks. They didn't build a warehouse. It's just every time she went in to get oil and every time she went in to get flour, it was still there. It just was still there. She'd pour it out, and it's still there. It's just still there. We serve the same God today, folks. You can trust him. You can trust him. I wanted to go to Dallas Seminary when I got out of college. And they had a waiting list back that year. They told me they had a waiting list of 800 guys. They didn't have any of the new buildings yet. And I'd been working, got out of college, working on the unloading trucks, saving money. And I met with uh, Dr. Ryrie was out at Mount Hermon for the Dallas Seminary Conference. And I thought, I never said this, but I thought, gosh, if I just go over and meet him, he'll probably really like me and he'll let me in the school. <laughs> and he was real nice to me, but uh, he was about as impressed with me as he was with the wallpaper. And he, he's a very gracious man. And he just said, you know, Steve, um, and I said, I've been working and I'm ready to go and I've saved money. And he said, you know, there's another place. All the profs are from Dallas. It's up in Portland, Western Seminary. I'd never heard of it. He said, you ought to check that out. They just built a new building. They probably have not a waiting list, but room. Um, six weeks later, I was there. And I got, I, I would, I had some money saved, and I worked on the truck docks a few hours a week, and I'm enjoying it. And then suddenly there was a recession, and everything dried up, and I went through my money, and they laid me off, and I wanted to finish seminary. And I was out of money. So I thought, okay, I'm going to move home. I'm going back to the Bay Area. Maybe I can get a job down there and save my money and come back and finish. I didn't want to leave. I told a friend, some friends of mine, and one of my friends came by the next day, and he goes, Steve, um, I got a gentleman I want you to talk with. And I've known him since I was a little boy. And he told me who he was. And his office was on the top floor of the highest building in Oregon. He's a Christian man. I want you to go talk with him. I thought, he's never going to get me in there. I was in there 4 o'clock the next afternoon. And I talked with the gentleman, and I told him, you know, and he said, I think it'd be good, Steve, if you could stay in school. And let me look and see. I mean, he had thousands of employees. Let's look. He said, let's see if we can find something. Can you come back tomorrow at 4? I said, I can. And uh, I told my friend, and he said, Steve, he's got a personal foundation with hundreds of millions. He's going to do something for you. I said, wow. I walked back in the next day at 4 o'clock, and he said, thank you for coming in. He stood up. I, I mean, I, I hadn't been in there 10 seconds. Thank you for coming in. He shook my hand. I'm sorry we have nothing for you. I, I wasn't sure I was in the right office because it was the exact opposite of what he had done the day before. I was really taken back, and I, I said, well, that's fine. Thank you. I, I said, I just wanted to make sure. Did you not ask me to come back today? He said, I did, and I appreciate your time. 
I said, thank you. And I remember going down the elevator and walking down those marble steps. I remember those marble steps and thinking to myself, that was so weird <laughs> that, Lord, you must be in that. It was so weird. Three years ago, my son, Josh, was in a situation. We're on the phone, and he told me about something that happened. And I said to Josh, that's so weird, Josh, that God has to be in it. I went home, didn't want to go home. I was trying to get work. There wasn't a lot of work there. I'm reading my books it's from seminary. I couldn't, it was great because I was reading a lot of books. I couldn't get all my work, but I wanted to get hired. And they kept saying, hold on, we'll get you hired. We'll get you hired because I was going to save money and go back. And that gone on for several months. And then all of a sudden, the guy said, hey, we got you on full-time graveyard shift in two weeks. I said, great. So Sunday night, I went to Body Life at Peninsula Bible Church where Ray Stebbins was my pastor. And it was a sharing service. And a lot of college students and kind of low-key, you know, and Ron Ritchie was up there leading the sharing, and there was teaching. And kids would just get up and talk about their needs. And, you know, I'm sitting there, and about five or six people got up and talked about they were praying God wasn't coming through. They were discouraged. It was pretty heavy. And I, th and I saw Ron, and I just kind of, and they, hand, they had a roving mic, and I took the mic, and I said, you know, a lot of folks are hurting tonight. I, I just, and I know what it is to wait. I've been waiting for several months, but God came through and I have this opportunity. And I told him, I just want to encourage you. You know, just wait on the Lord. He'll come through at the right time. Service is over. As soon as the service is over, a guy walked up to me. I hadn't seen him before. He said, uh, I know you from somewhere. I said, really, where are you from? He said, Tucson. I said, I've been there once. He, uh, he said, were you with the ministry team that came through about... I said, yeah, I was with those guys. He goes, I remember you. And he said, and he was the youth pastor. Now he's the pastor. And I said, oh, it's good to see you. I said, what are you doing up here? He said, I'm looking for someone to come and work with me at our little church. Well, I knew that church. I'd come out of a denomination that believed the Bible, but they had some doctrine I wasn't comfortable with. That's what that church was. And while I was in seminary, I kind of worked through some of that stuff. And he said, I'm up here looking for someone to work with me. I said, that's great. I hope you find them. And he said, hey, you got time to get together? And I said, yeah, I'll have coffee with you. And we had some mutual friends. We go out and we're talking. And he starts asking me stuff. And he said, so, you know, we're kind of transitioning out of where we were doctrinally to this. He said, what do you think of this? And I said, well, yeah, I, I remember I was taught that. But then you got this and this. And he goes, yeah, wow, that's wild. He said, well, but what about this? And I said, well... Yeah, I remember that. We were taught that, but then this says this and this and this, because I'd been in seminary. He said, that's really wild. He said, I think you're the guy to come. I said, I'm not coming. <laughs> I said, I just got a job. I'm going to work and go back to seminary. I'm going back to seminary in January. I got six months to work. He said, God may want you to come. I said, he didn't want me to come to Tucson. I just landed this deal. He calls me three days later. He says, hey, Steve, I talked to the elders. We'd like to fly you down and have you preach on Sunday. I never preached in a church in my life on a Sunday. And I said, I'm not, I, 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 he said, just come on down and preach. Well, I thought, I'll preach. I'd, I'd like to preach sometime. And I got down there, and then we had lunch, and then the elders started asking me questions because they were in the same, they were right behind me theologically about two years. I was just enough ahead of them, and I'd worked through some things, and they were talking all of us, and then they said, we'd like you to come. How much do you make on the truck docks? How much will you make? I said, well, I told them. 
They said, we'll match it. I said, okay. And then I went home and talked to my mom and dad, and I couldn't think of a good reason not to come. I didn't want to go, but I went. Had six months. I learned ministry. I had experience. I needed. I had too much head knowledge, not people knowledge. On my way out, it was a great time. They said, hey, Steve, by the way. And I was able to save some money, but not enough because my car had broken down, and I'm kind of worried about it. And on my way out, they said, hey, Steve, you get the tuition check until you finish seminary. Send it to us. We'll cover it. You know what that was for me? That was flour and that was oil. And God sent me where I didn't want to go. You know, folks, he may take us some places we don't want to go. But can I tell you something? He'll be faithful. The day, whatever happens in November, the next day, let me tell you something. His steadfast love will still be there. His mercies will never come to an end. They're new every morning, new every morning. So I said it last week, and I say it today. Go eat a cheeseburger. Because <laughs> he's got you. Thank you, Father, for the goodness of Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.